Now we're back in Samuel. Um, in, our, you know, in our Bibles, the book of Samuel is divided into two books, 1st and 2nd Samuel. But I, I, I keep referring it to one because originally and still in the Hebrew Bible, it is just one book and it was originally on just one scroll. Um, and the author sorted the material based on the poems that are featured in the book. There are five poems. There's, uh, actually, excuse me, there are four poems. There's one in the beginning, that's Hannah's song. That marks the beginning of the book. There's two at the end of 2 Samuel. Those are the bookends. And then right in the middle, there, where we're at today, there is a lament, a poetic lament from David on the death of Saul and Jonathan. And that divides the material up quite nicely. And so when it became time for people to think it would be prudent to divide it into two books, they divided it along that. There's some history there. Um, so let's start by reading the passage. We're going to go through all of chapter 1 today, and we'll be able to catch up quite a bit as we go along. Um, let me read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. This is Second Samuel chapter 1. We'll start at verse 1. After the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, well, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw, he saw me and called to me. And I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has ceased me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. This is verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm a son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed, referring to King Saul? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth is testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor, nor, nor fields or offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the, uh, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. You clothe, you, lux you, you luxurious in scarlet who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. 
How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. <coughs> Excuse me. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Lord Jesus, please walk us through this scripture. Please speak to your people as we listen. Please, God, make our hearts able and willing to pay attention and to hear what you would say. I ask that this would be an encounter with you this morning and with your word. Pierce our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, to me, um, for me, one of the more fascinating features of the Bible um, is its way of holding two ideas together in the same space that we moderns would consider ideas usually, some ideas opposed to each other. <clears throat> the Bible seems to have no, no problem holding ideas together and even implying that they work together that we typically think would be opposed to or even contradictory. Um, we live in a culture, and for our benefit, we live in a culture of intellectual systems, and there's nothing wrong with intellectual systems per se. In fact, because we have been able to systematize concepts, we've been able to isolate them, and we've been able to learn more about them. That is actually the power of our imperial scientific world, is that we ignore other things and we drill in on one thing and we learn everything we can about it. Um, the power of science is the power of limitation, limiting ourselves to one's field one thing, one observation, and learning as much as we can. It's really great. But the problem with intellectual systems is that they're a little, they end up being a little too crisp for real life, if you know what I mean. Um, they're too black and white. They're too boxed for real life. Real life is a little bit messier. In real life, if you haven't noticed, boundaries get blurred and they start to bleed into one another. Life is not so crisp and systematized and nice and neat and in our nice little boxes. Instead, if, if you notice, life is very mysterious sometimes. It can be gray. It can get blurry. And in that blurriness, in that grayness, in that kind of in-between uh, where we can't really tell where one ends and one begins. Oh, thank you. Um, awesome. I'm fighting a little bit of a cold. Um, it's in that place where, we, where the mysteries of life are found. Um, is life about the material or the immaterial? Blah or blah. <clears throat> is it transcendent or imminent? Blah or blah. Is it all about the physical world or metaphysical? Which one is it? Is it the universals of life or the particulars of life that matter? Is it chaos? Is life chaos or is life about order? All of these are the philosophical questions that have been asked by philosophers for <clears throat> hundreds and hundreds of years. And the Bible takes stuff like this and rather than pit them against each other or even put them side by side sometimes... The Bible, yes, it says there's a time and a place for everything, but more than that, it says that those times and those places actually affect one another, actually bleed into one another. In other words, how you experience one season is very much dependent on how you experienced the last season. Things are working hand in hand. It says that, and even more, it unapologetically begins to blend these kinds of concepts into, into each other where we would think they are, things are clearly different or even um, opposed. For example, the biggest example of Christianity, I mean, at the heart, is this blending. Um, we just celebrated a little bit ago Christmas. The incarnation, that is Jesus. You know, Jesus represents for the Christian. Jesus is the metaphysical became physical. The ultimate the universal, the universal became particular. 
became a particular human being. The transcendent one became imminent and dwelt within his own creation. The divine became human. See, Christianity at its core is this uncomfortable blend and throughout history, well, which one is he? Is he divine or is he human? And the Bible says, yes. And we go, well, no, that doesn't work for us. No, is it this, this, that? Well, when was he divine and when was he human? Yes. <clears throat> is he immortal or is he mortal? Is, he tr- is Jesus transcendent or is he imminent? Is he metaphysical or is he physical? Yes. The Bible does this and it makes it uncomfortable, but for me, fun, because it matches what, what I find in life. My life, even though systems are helpful, we learn a lot from things about systems, but they're flawed in that life is, is messier than that. Life doesn't fit within our boxes. Life sometimes doesn't go according to plan. Life sometimes defies our formulas and all of those things. And I love the Bible because the Bible respects that and reflects a life back that is accurate. We're dealing with real people here. Well, in our passage today, it's filled with concepts like this. And I'm going to point out at least three. This passage marks an event that is very bad and yet simultaneously at the same time very good. <laughs> it's bad and it's good. Um, it's the worst. It's, it's like, you know, a tale of two cities. It was the worst of times. It was the best of times. Not, now listen, not there will be a bad time and then a good time. No, no, at once. See, it's blurring. It's, it's starting to blur it together. At once, it was good and it was bad. Secondly, this passage describes judgment that is simultaneously a merciful cleansing. Judgment that is, in and of itself, an act of mercy. And thirdly, this passage describes lament and grief and sorrow that is necessary for hope and joy and new life. This is the stuff of life, if you haven't noticed. Let me see if I can show you. Number one, this passage marks an end that is simultaneously a beginning. Something that is bad, this, this battle, this event, that is simultaneously very good. When we left off before Christmas, King Saul was hunting David in the Judean wilderness. And Saul felt that David was the greatest threat to his kingdom at that time. So he expended his energy his resources as a king to hunt down David. David evaded Saul um, in Israel for a time, but eventually he got exhausted, he got tired. He thought, you know what, I'm just going to leave the country altogether to give myself a break. So he goes to the king of the Philistines. He makes an alliance with him and says, let me just hang out here. The king of the Philistines gives him David's very own city, Ziklag. And so David and his men, they hold up in this city of Ziklag. And basically, um, the barter was, I'll give you a city if you take responsibility for it. We need you and your men there, who are trained warriors, to kind of guard that front for us. And in, and in exchange, you can live in this, in this city. Meanwhile, Israel's real enemies, their real threat, the Philistines, were amassing this huge, massive army and launching an invasion that would go deep, 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 very threateningly into Israelite territory, taking place on the battlefield was this place called Mount Gilboa. And Saul and his sons could not ignore this. They had to leave David behind and they went to fight the Philistines. And tragically, all but one son tragically died. The Israelite army was obliterated and Israel was left completely leaderless. Imagine this. Imagine uh, for our country if we woke up one morning and there was some attack and there was no longer a Congress or a White House or leadership. I mean, it would definitely be a historic day. <laughs> it would be a day of lament. It would be very, very bad. Um, 
Now listen, here's what's interesting. The Bible, um, as I've told you before, has a really interesting style to it. It progresses, and yet it also revolves and recurses, meaning it's like a snowball. It will introduce to you a concept or an event, and then you'll be reading, you'll read this event, and then you'll be reading along, kind of leaves that event behind, and then you'll come to another concept or event, and you'll think to yourself, if you've been paying attention, you'll go, gosh, this sounds really super familiar. And it's because the, this, is, this is the Bible's main literary device. It, it takes a concept and it snowballs, it revolves, it's progressive and recursive to where it comes around again, except this time it has more mass to it. Um, and if you've been, if you remember, if you've been with us through the study, this should look extremely familiar to, to you. When we first started the book of Samuel, Israel had just come out of the time of the judges. Um, don't think courtroom judges, that's not what it's like. It's more like, think more like tribal chieftains that God would call and raise up to help Israel out of a jam. And then they would, those leaders would, would die and then Israel would get into another jam and God would raise up a new leader to get them out of this jam. It was all about leadership, but it was also about the extreme moral decline in Israel. They, they went from Joshua, um, in fact, Judges starts out the same way 2 Samuel starts out. 2 Samuel says, at the, this starts out at the death of Saul and Jonathan. Judges starts out by saying at the death of Joshua. In other words, there's a transition from, le- from one leader to another. Joshua had come into the promised land. He had been appointed to take over for Moses. Moses was called to take them to the promised land. Joshua was called to conquer the promised land, to settle in the promised land. And there were certain... Um, cultures of the Canaanite, the large Canaanite culture, but certain of them that Joshua was to conquer and to defeat completely, ridding them from the land. Uh, Israel was God's judgment against those immoral, dark people. And it was also so that Israel would not become just like them. So at the end of Joshua, Joshua gives this speech. Look, here, you are, here we are. uh, Moses, Deuteronomy says to live with our neighbors at peace, but there are some that we have uprooted and eradicated because they're just so bad. Don't become like the people around you. You've been called to be a contrast community. You're, You're not called to be like that. That's how it ends. And then Judges goes on to record their utter, absolute, complete failure in that, (laughs) in that command. They become just like the people around them. And it, gets, it records six judges, six leaders, and each one gets worse and worse and worse and worse. One judge, maybe you remember, it's, just a, it's a brutal read. If you've ever read through Judges, you're like, what is happening here? Uh, one judge named Japheth, or Jephthah, or whatever his name is, he, he's now so confused about who Yahweh is versus the gods of the Canaanites that he makes this pledge to God, thinking he's just like the God of the Canaanites, that I will, I will, if you give me victory, I will sacrifice my daughter to the, to, or, or I will sacrifice the first person I see come through the door. That's how the Canaanites used to worship their gods. They used to barter, they used to appease, they used to sacrifice their kids. He's now so confused, he can't tell the difference between Yahweh and who walks through the door is his daughter. He sacrifices his own kids, something that Yahweh never asked for. There's just this confusion even in the leadership. Samson, good guy or bad guy? Someone say bad guy. Don't believe Veggie Tales or whatever it is. <laughs> Samson was, was, a, he was a bad guy. And the reason God is choosing these leaders is because he's got, he doesn't have much to choose from. The culture is so bad. And by the time you end up at the end of Judges, it says three times, everyone was a law unto themselves. You know what that means? It means everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. There was no ethics. There was no societal rights or wrongs. If I wanted to steal from you, I could. It was just anarchy. It was was chaos. It was Gotham City. It It was just this complete degradation of morals and ethics. And that's when we started for Samuel, in that situation. 
Samuel, we open up for Samuel, there's this woman named Hannah. She's a mirror image of the state of the nation of Israel. She is favored by her husband, but also barren and fruitless, just the way Israel is favored by Yahweh, but they are destitute, barren, and fruitless. She prays to God, let me have a son, and if you give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you in in complete service. And God answers that prayer. Israel at the time is filled with corrupt leaders. You remember the high priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were so evil, they they were using their power and their leadership to take from people driving a further wedge between God and people, and they were taking advantage of the people, they were abusing the people that were coming to sacrifice to Yahweh. It was just as corrupt as you can imagine. And God had been warning. God warned through the first prophecy that little Samuel ever got was a warning prophecy against Eli and his son saying, hey, be a good leader. Eli would not do it. He had power, he refused to use it to restrain his sons. Finally, we come to a battle. After this corruption of leadership, after these years with the judges, after Israel's moral decline, we come to this battle. The Philistines again, they arrange their army, they come to the field of Aphek, and there they slaughter the Israelites. The Israelites come out to fight them. The Philistines win. The Israelites go back with their tails between their legs and they think, what do we do? And they say, I know what we should do. You guys remember the story? They said, we should send the Ark of the Covenant out there. Because again, what are they doing? They think that Yahweh works like Dagon or works like Baal or works like these others. In that way, the way the Canaanite gods worshipped was it was a It was a bartering system. It was a way, if we appease our gods, our gods have to give us rain. They have to give us war. They have to defeat our enemies. Yahweh doesn't work like that. He's beholden. Yahweh is beholden to no one. So they send the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant out there thinking this will manipulate Yahweh to fight for us. To their horror, 30,000 Israelites die. 30,000 Israelites die. The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. Back then, it meant, you know what that meant? It meant Dagon is more powerful than Yahweh. That's what the way they viewed that. And then, Hophni and Phinehas, the leaders of Israel, die in the battle. They're left leaderless. Just like our story today, a young man, except not an Amalekite, a Benjamite, runs back to town, just like our story today, with his clothes ripped, dirt on his head, and he comes to Eli, the high priest, who's 98 years old, blind at this point, and he says the same thing. Tell me what happened at the battle, just like how David asked the Amalekite, what happened? Eli says, what happened? And the Benjamite messenger says, Israel has fallen Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And when Eli hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, he goes into such shock, he falls off of where he was sitting. And he he falls on his head and breaks his neck, and he dies too. That's a bad day. And it gets even worse. Phinehas' wife, who's pregnant, When she sees that Eli died, her husband has died, the Ark of the Covenant, it brings her into such shock, she goes into into labor too early. And she has a child and she dies in childbirth. But not before, with her last dying breath, she names her kid Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed from Israel. The glory of God. Uh, by the, so, do you see the parallels here? Here we are. So the Bible's come back around. Here we are again. Except this time we're at Mount Gilboa. Israel goes out against the Philistines. Their leaders are all dead. Now their icon, what's their icon now? Before it was the Ark of the Covenant. What is it now? Well, it was 
In chapter 8, they told Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations. What was the problem? Was the problem them wanting a king? No. The problem was them wanting a king like all the other nations. They're doing the same thing. They want a God like all the other nations. They want a king like all the other nations. And this time, instead of sending the Ark of the Covenant out, they sent their beloved king, Saul, out there to do what they wanted. And he dies. And the heir to the throne dies. And now this Amalekite leader, same thing. The Bible's coming back around. This Amalekite leader comes with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. David said, what's the deal? He says, we were defeated. Saul and Jonathan are dead. And cries and laments. And what does David say in his song? He says, the glory of God has fallen. The glory of God is slain. Just like Phineas' wife said, the glory of God has departed. See, the irony, you can't miss it. It's, it's intentional. In other words, the author is saying, we're at an, this is another major fork in the road, another turning point for the nation of Israel. And just like before, this is both a bad day, a very, very, very bad day. In their minds, the worst has happened, and yet, in the battle of Aphek, it was a great day because it finally brought them back to Yahweh. A new leader was finally able to come up, Samuel. Samuel began to judge them, and he led them in repentance, and he led the whole nation back to Yahweh, serving him so that they began to flourish again. But then they revolved around, and they wanted corrupt leadership again. And Saul comes in. He started out great, but he quickly became corrupt. And he started leading the nation. And there needed to be a purge again. And here we are. Just like the battle of Aphek was horrible, but it also poised the nation of Israel for new leadership, for something new, for something green, for some new life and new leadership and some powerful revival. The author is calling his pitch here. He's saying this is the same type of thing. Saul, that corrupt leader, his whole dynasty is done, and now we're poised for David, a king, a man after God's own heart, to take over the, the nation at this point. Now listen, it's not that there are bad days and that there are good days here. I want to point out this feature because it's very important for us. No, in this case, the bad day is also a good day. This is why I can appreciate um, systematic theology, but I can also appreciate its limitations. The good and the bad are blurred. In one day, in one event, it's both horrible and also necessary in one event. And isn't that just the way life goes? Saul had to go, but it couldn't be from the hand of David, right? Right? David, David had to come by the throne honestly, and he had to come by the throne sovereignly. It had to be an act of God. And unfortunately, and fortunately, <laughs> since we're talking, unfortunately, and fortunately, this is the life, this is life in God's economy. Have you noticed this in your own life? The things we dread the most, when they actually happen, also end up being the best thing that could ever happen. I talk to people all the time that, that say things like, man, I would never want to go through it again. They, they even have trouble articulating it. They're saying, they feel like they have to qualify. It's not that what I, it's not that what I, I don't want to say it was good, but in a weird way, I'm glad it happened. Have you talked to someone like that? Maybe that's a testimony in your own life. I've heard these same sentiments from friends that have gone through some tragedies. My friend Dave Barnhart, who's a pastor who has spoken here, he, as a lot of you know, he had a major brain tumor um, that's been growing in his body his whole life, not knowing it, just growing slowly. It became the size of a grapefruit in his brain to the point where Christmas, five years ago, he stood up to, he, Christmas Eve, he stood up to do, around his table, to give a blessing and he started vomiting blood and fell and the ambulance came. They'd operate 
Uh, they had three major brain surgeries. Every time it was very possible that he could die. Thought he would be blind. They barely, they didn't know how to miss his carotid artery when they were going in there. It was a very, very delicate procedure. You talk to Dave now, I, I have recently, and I've talked to him. I've said, man, you seem, you seem, you know, Dave, he wouldn't mind me sharing this. He used to be a very, very, very anxious person. And I, last time I was with him, I said, hey, you seem like you're just a lot less anxious. What was it that uprooted that anxiousness out of your life and gave you peace? And he said, honestly, it was having a brain tumor. Like, I had to, it was the worst thing, but it was the best thing because I had to rely on God. And it was there in that hospital room where I was facing death that God showed up and I realized it's true. Jesus is real. And he goes, you know what? And I don't think I ever would have known it that in that concrete of reality unless I had been there facing death square in the face. I know Jesus is real. I know God is real. How do I know it? Well, I, in a weird way, I thank God for my brain tumor. It was the worst, but it was also the best. I talk to married couples after it's come out that someone has had an affair and some huge destruction happens on a family. I'll talk to them and, you know, one of them will say, oh, it's horrible. I... I I wish I never would have done those things. But you know what? It felt so good when it was, con- the day it came out, the day it hit the fan, the day the on- I could be honest again, the day I wasn't caring about that secret. You know, it was the worst, but oh, I'm so glad I- it was also the best. Have you experienced anything like that? This is the triumph of the God of the Bible. Let me read this famous, this is what, Paul was saying in Romans chapter 8 when he said, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Look at Paul, he's writing this theological treatise and it's almost like he just starts, he just gets caught up in his own thinking and just starts to just starts to just go off and praise God. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who could be against us? Like, it's, we're undefeatable. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is is he that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one that died. More than that, was raised from the dead who is at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or brain tumors or famines or nakedness or death or sword or cancer or sin or whatever it might be? No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is the hope that we have. God, like a judo expert, takes something really bad and uses its own momentum to turn it into something that's good. That's the cross. The day of the cross was the worst day and the best day. Evil consumed him and evil lost He goes on, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor culture wars nor height nor depth nor anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what this means? This means that someday you and I, that we that are following Jesus, all of us, think of this, someday we will be around a glorious victory table resplendent with the best meats and foods and a glass of whatever it is we'll be drinking in heaven. And we'll be looking at each other and we'll be like, we made it. We made it. Nothing can separate us from him. This is our hope. No matter what. Now, here's the thing. It's natural for us to want to avoid the tragedy. Of course. 
Of course, we want to avoid the bad day. We want to avoid the worst. That's only natural. And please, I'm not saying not to. I'm not saying to steer your ship headlong into it either. But I'm saying you can go through this life that is very blurry and very mysterious and painful and fraught with danger. You can go through this life knowing that it will be the worst it will be. But also, it'll be God will use it for his good. He'll use that as a catalyst to grow you or to chip things off that shouldn't be there or to finally break a habit in your life or to finally take you to the next area of closeness with Jesus. He'll use this this life filled with pain and suffering and sin. He'll use it to bring the best things. That's how the plot of the Bible keeps going forward. Tragedy brings hope, brings tragedy, brings hope, and it moves it progressively, recursively forward, all in one ball called life. Are you with me? You following me? Okay. Secondly, judgment is also mercy in this passage. There's no shortage of irony in this passage. In fact, there's so much of it, I have to believe it's intentional like I've already pointed out. Let me point out another one. Did you notice all the mentions of Amalekites throughout this passage? It's all over the place. Amalekites, Amalekites, and Amalekites, Amalekites. David just got the Amalekites, Amalekites, Amalekites. Let me, let me um, look at verse one. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained in, uh, two days in Ziklag. So he's three days out from destroying these Amalekites. And a man comes from Saul's camp just like the day of Aphek, his clothes torn, dirt on his head. <clears throat> and when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, just like Eli said to the Benjamite, David says to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. So Notice at this point, David still does not know this man's an Amalekite. David doesn't know that until verse 8. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know Saul and his, and, and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told Saul said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were, clo were, were uh, close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and, I, and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said, who are you? Here, here's where David figures it out. I'm an Amalekite. Now, note this Amalekite doesn't know that David is just three days out from destroying Amalekites. There's no, there's no idea. So he hears David's like, you're a what? You're a who? I'm sure David, it wasn't lost on him. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers and I stood beside him and I killed him because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And so I took his crown that was on his head, his armlet that was on his arm. I brought them here to my Lord. And then David cries, he mourns, they fast, they weep. And then he comes back in verse 13. David said to the young man, where did you say you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said, how is it that you weren't afraid to strike down the Lord's anointed? And he, he orders his execution. There are several ironies here. Number one, David, just three days earlier, was out defeating a band of Amalekite marauders. You know the story, when David was out, Amalekites came in, they took David's wives, his men's families. David came back, they pursued them, they overtook them, and they've just come back from that raid Three, three days earlier and something just is not adding up with this Amalekite guy's story. If you remember uh, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, this guy's account, this Amalekite's account and the account of Saul's death in the last chapter of 1 Samuel do not match. There are two different accounts. In that account, Saul was mortally wounded by a Philistine arrow. He was shot with, it, with an arrow um, and knowing that he was going to die, Saul told his armor bearer to, to kill him. The guy refused. The armor bearer was like, I'm not doing that. And so Saul took his sword and fell on it and committed suicide so that the Philistines wouldn't, um, wouldn't have the, the uh, honor of killing him. 
And when the armor bearer saw that that's what Saul did, the armor bearer followed suit. He took out his sword and killed himself. There have been a lot of ways that people have tried to make this work. I think, I think the clearest answer is that this Amalekite guy is not telling the truth. I think, he's trying to, I think he's trying to get a reward from David. He comes upon, I mean, first of all, how do you just so happen to show up at Mount Gilboa where there's a war going on? You just took a left and there's all this fighting. How do you just so happen to find Saul? I think, I can't prove it, but I think it's the most straightforward answer. I think he came upon Saul, Saul's dead body. I think it was well known that Saul, and, that Saul and David were rivals, that Saul was after David, but I don't think it was well known that David loved Saul and refused, refused to hurt him himself. And I think he thought, I think he saw an opportunity. He took the crown off the head, he took the armlet off, he went to David, and he was expecting a reward from David. Also how I know that is because he says, or how I think that, he says um, in verse 3, or maybe it's verse 4. He says, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul, and he just singles out one of Saul's sons, even though all of them that were there at the battle died. He just singles out Jonathan. Why Jonathan? He's the heir of the throne. Yeah. I think he's coming to David saying, Look, man, I killed your enemy, and I've brought you this proof and Jonathan, the heir is, in other words, the throne is yours. I'm the one that's delivered, the, and I'm the one that made it happen. Reward me. And I think he was probably shocked and kind of in his mind went, uh-oh, when instead of David rejoicing and hooping and hollering and saying, woo, we're not on the run anymore, boys. I'm going to be the king. Instead, David goes, whoosh, rips and dirt on his head, and there's lamenting. And I think the Amalekite was like, uh-oh. Maybe I have this wrong. And David comes back to him and says, how is it? By your own mouth, you, you admit to killing the king. You know, the Amalekite at this point is, oh no. And David does what Saul could not do. That is our second, that's the second irony in all of this. They, the Amalekites... Um, end up being a symbol of Saul's disobedience and ultimate downfall. The Amalekites have been following Saul around metaphorically or haunting him. This was his disobedience that lost him the kingdom before he lost the kingdom. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God told Saul, Here, as my image bearer, as my king that images me, I want you to go and bring judgment against the Amalekites. I don't want you to loot them. I don't want you to save them. I want you to judge them, and I want you to wipe them out. I've given them plenty of chances. This is it. I want you to wipe them out so they don't infect you with their cultural things that are against me. So Saul amasses his army. He goes down there, and he does not obey. He Saul's the type of guy that obeys God until he doesn't want to anymore. That's, that's, the, that's Saul. He follows God until he doesn't. He's into Jesus until he's not, well, not Jesus, Yahweh, until he's not. He saved, he looted the Amalekites. He saved their gold, he saved their treasures, he saved their best cattle, he saved some of their people as slaves for Israel. He even left the king alive originally. And when Samuel showed up on the scene and saw this disobedience, this is, he says, this is what's lost you the kingdom, man. You're done. I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to find a man after my own heart that will obey me even when it's inconvenient, even when you don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense to you, even when you think you know better, I wanna, this man will obey me. I'm going to find a neighbor who's better than you. You remember that dramatic scene, Samuel goes to turn away because he's just mad. He goes to turn away and Saul, he won't let go of the kingdom and he reaches out and grabs Samuel's um, robe and as he turns, it rips. And Samuel doesn't waste a beat. He turns around and he says, God has ripped the kingdom from you. Just this incredible moment. And now, how ironic, how fitting that 
Saul, who looted the Amalekites in his death, is now being looted by an Amalekite. That in all intents and purposes, had he been obedient, wouldn't be there. And now David brings judgment on the Amalekites. But this was also a cleansing. This was also mercy. David puts an end to the Amalekite plague that followed Saul around and literally killed him in the end. That's the nature in the Bible of disobedience. It grows, it festers, it, it um, like cancer, it consumes. Justice means righting a wrong. That's what justice means. This is what David's doing. He's righting a wrong, he's righting the wrong of his predecessor. He's being obedient when Saul was disobedient. Justice means righting a wrong, and in this case, through bringing a swift and violent end to something that will eat away at you and eventually kill you. The sense here is not that there is judgment and then followed by mercy. The sense here is that this act of judgment is an act of mercy. It is merciful. Mercy, in fact, God's judgment, I will say emphatically in the Bible, God's judgment is always merciful. Always. It's always corrective. Always. It's never God has a mood and he just flies off the handle and says, I can't take it anymore. And squishes people. And then he goes, oh, I'm sorry. Now I'm merciful now. It's, that's, it's not that. It's that his judgment is an act of his mercy. Mercy can't come, in fact, without judgment. Violently dealing with disobedience and sin is an act of mercy. They bleed together a little bit. And this, this theme is really seen when, when you get into the prophets, especially the minor prophets. They come back to this, the 12 minor prophets come back to this theme over and over again. Judgment brings mercy. Judgment is necessary for mercy to come. It's, you can't skip this step. David did what Saul would not do. David is killing this Amalekite and it ensures that the same disobedience that plagued Saul's life would not plague his own. It also means that the same disobedience that plagued Saul's reign and kingdom would not plague David's. David reminds us here a lot of Jesus. Um, in Romans chapter five, Paul says, therefore, as one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam in the garden, led to condemnation for all people. That's called the spreading of a disease. One man, and that's also to talk about what you do matters for everyone else. One man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all people. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. Through one man's obedience. In other words, Jesus was here doing what Adam could not do. He was righting the wrong and taking the penalty of Adam's wrong upon himself. What are some areas of disobedience that might be following us around? That have become habits, that have become plagues, that have grown, that, are be that have become attitudes, that have become dynamics in a family, that have become you know, something that you your brain just clicks into with certain people. What are some of those things and how can we mercifully deal with them strongly within our community? How would God want us to bring a swift and perhaps even violent justice to those things in our lives that threaten us, that threaten our families? Finally, lament and joy are, the same, are, are blended together. Lament and joy are blended together. Let me read it. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. <clears throat> and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher, he said. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How mighty, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. In other words, don't let the Philistines rejoice over this. 
lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offering. Mountains were places where you offered sacrifices to the gods in those days. So he's saying, let there be no offering there. For, the shield, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul was not anointed with oil. And then he speaks some very sacrificial language. He says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. He's talking about blood and fat, very Leviticus 16 stuff. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. The daughters of Israel, as juxtaposed to the daughters of, of the Philistines earlier. This is Hebrew poetry uh, at its finest here. The daughters of Israel weep over Saul. So the Philistines, don't let them weep, but we will weep. In life and in death, or excuse me, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold in apparel, how the mighty have fallen. There's that refrain in the midst of the battle. And then he says some personal things about Jonathan. He says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. There's that refrain. And the weapons of war perished. I'll make this one brief. In a sense, David's rise to power was so timely, timely, precisely because Jonathan's death was so untimely. Jonathan was the heir. He was going to be the king. He had an untimely death so that David's rise to power would be perfect. David's reign was so great because Jonathan's death was so great. The two are linked. No one is more grateful. The Bible plays with this idea all the time. Um, to the degree that you've suffered, to that degree you'll rejoice. No one's more grateful to sit at a table than those that have been starving. Right? Those people are the most grateful. Jesus came along and said, those that have been forgiven much, love much. There's a link here between lament and grief and, great, and gratitude and rejoicing and power and strength. <clears throat> so Christians, because of this, have a rich tradition of lament, of grief, of confession, especially of grief over our sin. Because the more we understand the loss and the grief and the gravity of sin, the more we can glory in the resurrection of Jesus. On the cross, because of our disobedience, the rightful heir of the cosmos died for our, because of our sinfulness. It's the only way it could have worked. The only way David could be king was if Jonathan died. The only way we can be in the family of God is if Jesus died. He gave it up. He gave up his throne. And on the cross, the glory of God was snuffed out for us so that we could share in it. And it's because we're, we're that bad. That was because of our sin and our disobedience that haunts us, that threatens to take us out. But when he raised again, Jesus rightfully took the throne and made us co-heirs with him. Now here's the thing. You're not gonna understand that second part that you're a co-heir. That's your identity in Christ. You're not gonna understand that second part until you really sit in and face the first part, that you lament over your brokenness, that you grieve, that you see your soiled motives, that you face your manipulation, that you're honest. That's why honesty is a huge part of Christianity. Confession is a huge part of Christianity. Confessing your sins to one another is a huge part of Christianity because to the degree that you understand your sin, to that degree you will understand and rejoice in God's goodness and his salvation. The darker the night, the brighter the stars. 
the worse the villain in any film or novel, the greater the salvation. The two are, are linked together. They bleed into each other. They're dependent on each other. This is why people, the the most sinful people of Jesus' society flocked to him. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the the people on the margins, not the religious goody-goods that followed the law. Why? Because they didn't get that they were sinners. This, I think, is the danger um, of kids that grow up in Christian homes and know this their whole lives, they don't necessarily get a chance to stare their own sin in the face sometimes. They know it intellectually, but they haven't felt the gravity of, oh my gosh, I remember the day, I do, I remember the day. I was in high school, and I'd just done something really bad for the upteenth time after I would vowed that I would never do it again. I did it again, and I went, I, I remember it hit me, I thought, I belong in hell. Like, I'm that bad. Up till that point, I thought, I'm on the good side. Like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm a good guy. But it hit me, not in here, it, boom, it hit me. Wow, it would be totally fair. It would be totally fair. And that was also simultaneously the moment I began to understand God's grace in a whole new way. I was grateful because I knew I wasn't going there. Someone else took hell for me. And it was at that point forward that I was able to look at my fellow humans without judging them. I could no longer from that moment look at somebody else and go, I'm better than you are. I couldn't because I thought, well, actually, I probably would, you know, given enough time, (laughs) you know, water those seeds a little bit, put some fertilizer on, I'd probably be doing the same thing. It's crazy. I became a member of, I became a member of heaven and also I rejoined the human race all, all in once. It became both. Christianity wasn't something I'd earned or something that I had attained or something that I finally grasped, it had finally grasped me because I couldn't ignore my sin anymore and I lamented. And it was like the Lord was saying, oh, you haven't seen nothing yet. And it was like cycle after cycle of seeing even darker sin and even seeing the sinful motives even behind my, good, my acts of service were really to help myself, not to help. I mean, it was, just, it was just an endless cycle of psychological gunk in my mind that informed even my religious behavior. It was endless. And finally, I just had to sit and say, I've got nothing to give you. Nothing. And that was when he said, ah, I have everything to give you. We have to lament. You won't understand the resurrection until you get through Good Friday. This is life, isn't it? Sheesh. The worst sometimes becomes the best. Sometimes judgment and being harsh and doing something that's right takes some harshness, and yet it is an act of mercy in and of itself. It's the right thing to do. Even when it comes to our relationships, I don't want to. Sometimes mercy, the way we think of it, is really enablement and it isn't really good for that person. Sometimes it's merciful to say, "Hey, man, you're wrong, and I love you. Let me help you out." And lament gives way to joy. That's why Christians grieve like the best. We're not Christians. Don't walk around with our heads in the sand, ignoring the grief and horrible stuff that's going on in life. We, like anyone else, can grieve it. But it's like a furnace. The colder it gets, the more the hope, the heat kicks on. We don't grieve like others where there is no hope. Our grief breeds hope. God is in this. And that's, that's life. 
I forgot to type a conclusion. So that's it. Let's stand. Lord, life is scary and fraught with danger and painful. But Lord, at the same time, is beautiful and good and glorious and fraught with opportunity and life and excitement. And sometimes those two seasons blend. Lord, sometimes we need judgment. We need someone to hurt us in the good way. Lord, and we need to lament and grieve rather than ignore and be in denial. Lord, help us to be honest today. I pray, Lord, that as we take communion, that we could take it with a sense of holy grief over what our sins did to you. over what it took for you to redeem us from the hand of our evil, to save us from eternal judgment. I pray, God, that you would help us to look bravely again so that we can also appreciate your salvation and your life and your resurrection more deeply than ever. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.